Welcome, everybody, to Media Sandwich, a charcuterie board full of morsels from across all facets of pop culture, delivered to your table by a, a high-strung ginger who's just trying to hold it together. And I am he, I am Kyle Martinak, and uh, it's Labor Day. So let's take advantage of Labor Day and sit with an extra cup of tea and peruse the headlines in our underpants. Uh, let's start out with video game news. Uh, in the world of video games, a fun, interesting, I, I call these curios every once in a while when I grab one of them, a uh, new Half-Life 2 Episode 3 concept art has surfaced after quite a few years, uh, thanks to a collector named David McGreevy, who himself is a senior producer over at 2K, and uh, he's an he's avid collector of uh, art from projects that didn't work out, and Half-Life 2 Episode 3 is certainly one of those. It's been going on 15 years now since Half-Life 2, uh, well, Half-Life 2 was a major success, and Valve said, well, geez, we need to release, you know, we, we need to release things at a faster clip, so let's take this next sequel and break it up into a bunch of smaller chunks, and that way we can release them directly to Steam, and it'll be great. And it was great for the first two episodes, and then after that we never saw anything again. No Half-Life 2 Episode 3, no Half-Life 3 proper, no Portal 3 either, and that was kind of the end of Valve as a game developer. Which was sad, but uh, the most prominent piece of this concept art that David McGreevy uh, owns, and uh, he's been painstakingly scanning all of these so that they can be available to the public, uh, just because they're really interesting. It's really interesting stuff. The most prominent piece that I saw was the big giant alien worm, like a milky white alien worm that apparently is the villainous Dr. Breen, who died at the end of Half-Life 2. Uh, very weird that that's uh, the next uh, appearance of that character, but it's very funny because the, the piece of art has been dubbed Breen Grub. <laughs> Breen Grub. Uh, it's got some serious God Emperor of Dune vibes to it, let me tell you something. It's, uh, it's gross, but in a kind of a pleasing way, if you're into that sort of thing. So check out Breen Grub online if you are feeling nostalgic about the days of Half-Life. I love the Half-Life series. I really, I, honestly, I loved Valve as a game developer. The coolest thing about Half-Life 2 and about the Portal games was the, you know, the first-person shooter trappings kind of mixed together with a puzzle or platformer sensibility. A lot of Half-Life 2 is not shooting. A lot of Half-Life 2 is trying to solve the puzzle of how to climb up, you know, this wall without falling to your death. How to jump this airboat over the top of this weird, you know, sewer pipe thingy without dying. That kind of stuff. Uh, and that was always the best parts of those games. I really loved Portal 2. I think it's a stone-cold classic. And naturally, we haven't gotten a new one since because Valve, you know, they just kind of said, well, we make more money off of uh, off of Steam. And uh, while we're talking about that sidebar, I was really starting to sell myself on getting a Steam Deck uh, instead of monkeying around with like an Xbox S or X or a PS5. Because I've always been a PC gamer at heart, really. I played most of my high school era games on a tower PC that my dad built himself. So, like, Knights of the Old Republic, people played that on the original Xbox, not me. I played the PC port. Uh, the original Halo. I never had that original Xbox, so I played Halo on the PC. Uh, Half-Life 1 and 2, those were the big games of that those years for me. I played the PC versions of all of... The really big games of that era, including the Grand Theft Auto uh, games, mostly on the PC. And honestly, uh, because the the Steam Deck could work as a modest upgrade for non-gaming PC stuff for me, uh, I don't own a full-fledged PC, actually. I have a Chromebook, which is actually a tablet. It's the Lenovo Duet. So it's it's an Android tablet that also is a Chromebook. 
and uh that's the only thing i carry around and use i mostly just use it for writing and uh streaming video and whatnot and then i record this podcast on an ancient 2009 era dual core pentium uh that used to run windows 7 and then it crashed so i had to wipe it and then i switched it to linux and and hey the steam deck runs off of a version of linux so that might be right up my alley i was really selling myself on it it sounded like my ideal machine you know the portability of a switch the versatility of a pc that runs on linux so everything is very open source which i like uh the price is that of a low-end laptop so hey you know it could justify the purchase possibly and best of all not having to deal with scalpers or hitting refresh at four o'clock in the morning or having it in my cart, my online shopping cart, and then suddenly gone out of my shopping cart. You know, all the stuff that has become part of the console buying experience in the last couple of years, which really sucks and has really put me off this new generation of consoles almost entirely. I think, uh, I think all that stinks. And I think that it's uh, really ruined video gaming for for me as a, on the consumer end of things not on the actually playing end of things but as as a buyer i just can't be bothered with that crap that's nonsense to me uh the shortages of ps5s have really soured me on that device i i don't want to pay a premium for some i don't want to pay more than a car payment for a console i'm sorry i don't uh but anyways uh yeah, unfortunately, though, with the Steam Deck, I'm already seeing a lot of rumblings like, oh, don't worry about all the hardware issues. Like, oh, it gets too hot or, oh, it's kind of plasticky or, oh, the trackpads don't, you know, th it's a greater concept than it is in execution. Well, don't worry, we'll fix all of that with a newer model coming soon. So, yeah, yeah, maybe I'll wait. Maybe I'll wait on that, which is fine. My policy has always been wait for a second generation version of a machine if I can, uh, if it's clear one's coming soon, you know, I, di I didn't get a uh, switch for a couple of years. And so everybody experiencing Joy-Con drift and all of the other problems that people had with that hardware, I never had to deal with that. Thank goodness. Uh, I never had to deal with, I did end up with a red ring of death on an Xbox 360, but that was one that I inherited from somebody first one that I paid for was the Elite, so it was a great device that never died. It's still still sitting in my kid's room right now, acting as a DVD player. So, yeah, I, I think it, it helps to not uh, be a beta tester on devices like this, although it means that I am my finger is so far from the pulse on what's new in technology these days. I can live with that, I guess, but... The Steam Deck looks cool to me. I don't know if it can really justify the purchase yet at this point, but maybe someday I'll be in hog heaven with one of those things. But anyway, end of sidebar. Um, other video game news. If you happen to play Halo Infinite on your Xbox uh, uh, Gamer Pass situation, and you are possibly looking forward to playing co-op with a buddy coming soon... Well, you just lost one time-honored method of doing so. The Halo franchise actually dropped split-screen co-op for the campaign of Halo 5 Guardians a couple years back, and it was a real big mistake. Such a big mistake that 343 Industries even like publicly castigated themselves for it. They said, oh, don't worry, we'll never leave out the couch co-op on a Halo game again. Uh, so anyway, they're canceling the split-screen co-op update for Halo Infinite. Uh, that didn't take long, did it? I am behind on my gaming by an embarrassing amount, as, you know, I, I think my discussion of the Steam Deck, uh, kind of illustrated why, but Halo Infinite, what is it? I mean, I was under the impression it was just the latest Halo game, which it is, but, uh, it, se it seems like a standard Halo sequel, but with more of a limited open-world exploration setup thing, and the online multiplayer is more of a free-to-play, like, lobby situation. The plot gets advanced more in the traditional, like, mission chapters that are linear, like an old level of a Halo game, but those are kind of 
you know, they're not replayable and they're kind of fewer and further between with the exploration stuff uh, filling out the majority of, of the game. That's what it seems like to me. Um, and, and most importantly, of course, it's a full price game that they can continue to add to and tweak and fix and charge money for, you know, a subscription over the course of several years. So, yeah, it's from what it sounds like to me, we're talking about Halo by way of Fortnite, Destiny and also GTA Online, right? I haven't seen a stitch of the game itself, but that's sure what it sounds like. That bugs me. If there was one thing I could rely on with a Halo game, it's that it was a complete game that I could buy and then just, like, play. Uh, yeah, anyways, online co-op for the campaign version is still totally gonna happen. That'll be available in the update that they're dropping sometime between November and March, I'm seeing. That's kind of a wide margin of when that's happening, but... Uh, yeah, that update is a biggie, because it also comes with a promised uh, beta on the forge mode where you can create your own maps and whatnot sure somebody's gonna make squid game inside halo great great uh i'm <laughs> i'm really outing myself as an old fogey gaming wise uh right here because I, I do just miss those days where you could buy a game it was done and you could play it and then you could say whether you liked it or not and it doesn't have to be this case of like, well, yeah, when it released, it was a total dumpster fire. But, you know, I think about 18 months after release, that's when that game really started to come into its own. Like, like a game is like a living document now. I don't like it. I don't like it. Uh, I also don't like betas. I don't like to play something that's not done. Uh, I, I don't like being an unpaid beta tester or, in fact a tester who is paying a monthly subscription and a purchase price in order to test something that's buggy, unfinished, in need of constant updates. And I, and I get it. I do get people who do like doing that. It's uh, People like to be on the cutting edge. They like to, you know, it, it, the second something's available, they want it in their hands. They want to play it. They want to experience it as, as quick as possible. And I get that. I think another big divide for me, though, is that a lot of gamers... I think part of that experience is they want to feel connected to the industry in that way. They want to feel plugged in on the latest happenings and updates. That, and a, a big deal of it is many gamers want to be developers themselves. Uh, so they, they want to feel like they're participating in the game making, you know, cycle, the game making process. And I get that. I totally get that. Uh, and I it's not me, though. Uh, I've got a job, man. I got a good job, and I'm playing games because I already did my job today. And uh, now I want to pretend that I'm a wizard or a space marine or a pro hockey player for just a little while. So that's me. Uh, but that's a purely, purely uh, personal preference on that. Um, now, more immediate news. And speaking of shooter games, uh, this is a shooter game. But it's a totally different kind of shooter game. Uh, Splatoon 3 is releasing this Friday, September 9th. That's coming right up. And this one seems like fun. It's uh, it's has a single-player campaign attached, finally. That was what I was missing from the first two Splatoon experiences. Uh, as well as the... Uh, what is it? The Slammin' Salmon mode, or whatever you call the co-op versus Waves of Bots... Salmon Run! Salmon Run! <laughs> Slammin' Salmon is, uh, that is a movie from the Broken Lizard folks, uh, who, who made Super Troopers. Slammin' Salmon. Anyway, Salmon Run, that's what they call it. Uh, cool thing on Splatoon 3, the Salmon Run mode will be available at all times instead of just only at scheduled times, like it was in Splatoon 2. Uh, so getting rid of that kind of you know, that mobile game thing where, hey, an event is happening. Uh, no, I paid for this game. I paid a lot for this game. So why don't you just let me play that whenever I feel like it? Uh, very fun. That that feeds into this thing I'm talking about where I would like I would like the entire game at my fingertips, please. Uh, so good on you, uh, Nintendo, for that one. Outside of outside of uh, the single player and uh, that update to <laughs> Slam and Salmon. 
Um, it sounds like from the reviews, like three is mostly just an incremental update to what we got in Splatoon 2. Not much different. Uh, you know, a couple of new weapons, uh, lots of new stuff to do in the overworld in between matches, but overall just kind of feels like a bigger version of what the Octo expansion DLC was for two. So if you liked that expansion, here you go. More, more, more of a good thing. But Splatoon in general, I think is fun. I like, uh, I like the idea of, uh, you know, let's take a, an easy win, like a first person shooter, uh, online match em up kind of you know, setup, and then give it this cool coat of paint that's kid friendly. It's fun. It's, it's an aesthetic that you never see in that kind of game. So yeah, thumbs up to Splatoon as a concept and as a franchise. Don't know about three very much, but well, I don't I don't know much about three beyond that, but uh until the end of this week, hey, try to avoid spoilers, I guess, because I uh, from what I'm reading here, a lot of the game's campaign and newer features and whatnot went up online as leaks over this last weekend. But I mean, what? Are we going to find out that all the cute little squids are actually dead the whole time and this endless paint battle is like purgatory? I, <laughs> I don't think it's that big a deal that, oh no, the intricate plot of Splatoon 3 might have been leaked on YouTube. Anyways, uh, that's video game news. Didn't have a whole lot to go over, but uh, let's shift over to movies. Not a lot of earth-shattering movie news this week, but here's something. <laughs> Here comes trouble. We got a trailer for Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey. If you don't know about this, this movie was threatened on an innocent populace only a few months ago due to the beloved A.A. Milne uh, stories featuring Winnie the Pooh and all of his friends uh, falling into the public domain. And what happens when something falls into the public domain? Why, we get a bunch of jokers who use it as the flimsy premise for their own scorching hot takes on the characters. So, yeah, this is a slasher movie in which Pooh and Piglet viciously attack people in a bloody killing spree after Christopher Robin abandons them to go to college. Now, look, uh, it sounds a lot like the kind of movie conceived of in between bong rips to me. You know, a whole lot like... It's like the bear used to love honey, but now he's got a taste for blood. Oh, it's twisted. <sighs> like, it looks like shit, folks. It looks like shit. It looks like the kind of movie that's trying to become one of those culty bad movies that becomes the object of fascination for bad movie podcasts and YouTube channels. And as we all know, the best way to produce one of those you know, legendary good-bad movies is to do so intentionally, right? That always works out. Anyway, yeah, that movie will be distributed out of the back of a creepy van or <laughs> or a local red box sometime later this year. Uh, woof. Gross. Anyway, speaking of gross, what else is happening but Shia LaBeouf is back in the public eye. It's been a whopping two years since he was sued for abuse and sexual battery by a former partner, so naturally it's time for him to resurface from several angles all at once this last week. It was it was frightening. This sounds like a bad horror movie. For starters, he made headlines uh, this last week for not being the star of Olivia Wilde's new movie that uh, premiered at the Venice Film Festival this weekend, Don't Worry Darling, uh, which has had a lot of headlines in the last week. Because she talked about Shia LaBeouf exiting the project, possibly of his own volition, or not, we're not sure. I don't know, and I don't particularly care too much. Uh, uh, it gave Harry Styles the chance to be the lead in a big steamy romance with uh, Florence Pugh, at any rate. So, if that sounds like your bag, baby, definitely check out Don't Worry Darling when it uh, opens wide. Later on this year, uh, probably looking for awards season. Uh, but yeah, uh, I, I did see the trailer for it uh, because I went to see 3,000 Years of Longing the other night and the Don't Worry Darling trailer dropped. 
It seems to be a real this ain't your granddad's Stepford Wives kind of thing. Like it takes place in a uh, uh, experimental neighborhood uh, that where Chris Pine may or may not be a, a cult leader or maybe everybody is robots like that terrible Stepford Wives remake or... Uh, I don't know, but bottom line, uh, Florence Pugh is not feeling great about where she's living, but she is feeling great about having lots and lots of sex with Harry Styles. So that's what that movie is. That's what it looks like from the trailer, at least. And apparently it was Shia LaBeouf before it was Harry Styles. I've, I haven't seen any of the movie other than that trailer, but I'm going to call that an upgrade at this point, uh, at least in terms of the aesthetic, because it has a very, like not Norman Rockwell, but kind of like a, like a Truman era, uh, you know, costume and set design look to it. Shia LaBeouf doesn't look like somebody who exists in the 1950s or in a 1950s-esque aesthetic. Harry Styles does though. So visually probably an upgrade, but yeah, um, could be good. I don't know. Meanwhile, Shia LaBeouf also came out and said that he, his previous attempt to mount a comeback a couple of years ago, that semi-autobiographical movie Honey Boy that he co-wrote, uh, yeah, turns out that movie was a whole lot of bullshit, and his dad didn't abuse him, etc. So, okay, alright, uh, kind of a weird thing to announce apropos of nothing this week. But meanwhile, Shia LaBeouf also was announced to be joining a new movie called Megalopolis, directed by some guy named Francis Ford Coppola. Yeah, that one. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola is taking a break from wine country to make a new movie, and he's financing the movie himself, naturally. That's what he does. And it takes place in an alternate version of New York called New Rome, so the movie's, you know, about politics and backstabbing, maybe literally, maybe not, it's Rome. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, sounds very wildly ambitious and probably crazy expensive, and it has a cast stacked to the gills, including Adam Driver, uh, Jason Schwartzman, uh, Forrest Whitaker, Lawrence Fishburne, Grace Vanderwall. Uh, Talia Shire, naturally, she's Francis Ford Coppola's sister, she's in a lot of his movies. Uh, yeah, uh, John Voight, James Remar, Natalie Emanuel, and apparently Shia LaBeouf. Interesting couple of choices there, but yeah, it seems like we're getting a take four or five of the Shia LaBeouf redemption tour, starting with the Abel Ferrara film Padre Pio, which also premiered at the Venice Film Festival this last week, and stars Shia as a monk in a post-World War I monastery. Sounds like a skip to me, but, um, you know, it. I really tried to defend Shia LaBeouf over the years. I did, for many more years than I feel comfortable with in retrospect. It's, it's something else. Stardom went to his head back during the post-Disney Channel Transformers days when he was suddenly the hot new It kid, and he started drinking and acting like an asshole and crashing his car and stuff, and you could just tell, like, oh, he's troubled, you know? Like, there are a lot of young actors who get into that mode where you just want them to find something to sink their teeth into as an actor and channel all of that energy into something positive. You know, I felt the same way about Lindsay Lohan, honestly. Just like, oh, you're actually really good, Go, go be good and stuff. Stop screwing around. But he went away for a bit, Shia did, and uh, he had a few projects that he was trying in uh, in between there, and, and he was very good. Things thing is about him, he's a, he's a talented actor, but not enough to preclude him from being severely damaged and prohibitively a pain in the ass to, to work with. That's apparently what happened with Don't Worry Darling. Uh, you know, he claims, oh, it was a scheduling conflict. But now uh, Olivia Wilde's saying, no, he was actually a, a real terror to work with. And uh, uh, Florence Pugh is very uncomfortable with him, which doesn't sound good considering a lot of the scenes would have been like sexual in nature. And the word being used a lot about his behavior was aggressive. So 
I don't know. I'm not gonna. I'm gonna. I'm not going to speculate on what the hell any of that means or whether or not any of it's true. I'm just gonna say it sucks that he can't seem to pull himself together long enough to be in a movie uh, anymore, which is pretty bad. Um, I mean, he, there were a couple of years there. He went a little goofy with his "I'm a kooky living art installation" stuff, and everybody was like, oh no, this guy's gone off his rocker. I didn't think he had gone off his rocker. I thought he was trying to work through things. I thought that might have been part of his uh, his rehabilitation was, I'm trying to reconcile with the fact that fame totally ruined me as a person way too early on in my life. But anyway, he did go to rehab and he, and he tried to mount a comeback and people were more than ready to embrace him was the thing. Uh, Peanut Butter Falcon and Honey Boy were both seen as like, oh, this guy has a lot to say and a lot of creative expression left in him. Years, years of work ahead of him still. He just needed to get past the demons. And hooray for him, he got past the demons and here he is doing some of his best work in years. And then that didn't even last very long. He started covering himself in tattoos and there were reports of like outbursts and more shitty drunken behavior and before you know it, it's like, well, I guess the demons are winning. I guess we toss him back in the trash. I remember, uh, I don't know how accurate this memory is, but whatever shitty crime thriller that he got all tatted up for, he was coming out in press being like, this movie really saved my life. It was really therapeutic, and it was the role I was born for, and it's going to be a really special thing in the legacy of my career. And uh, it was like a straight-to-streaming, middle-of-the-road shrug. Like, it wasn't that big of a thing. And and then, right after that, the assault stuff came out, and now he's back on his bullshit. He, he does this all the time. He said the same thing about... Uh, about the peanut butter falcon where like oh i was in a really horrible place i was a really terrible selfish person and then this this role being able to channel all of that energy into this role really helped save my life and get me back on the right track and it's like well not for long apparently dude uh he said the same thing this week about padre pio the the ferrara movie he said the movie saved his life he keeps he keeps using these roles as like uh the you know this is the facade is Oh, well, you know, every time I come back to work and put my head down and actually try, it makes me a better person and all of that stuff is a is a different guy in the past until the next out, outburst, right? Like, he went on a podcast to talk about how he did, in fact, hurt that woman and a lot of other people. And he's, you know, he was in a destructive place. And, and now we're back, back to the basic, I'm just trying to pull myself together stuff. It's like Shia might be the living embodiment of BoJack Horseman, because he's a man who's so wrapped up in his own selfishness that he doesn't even fathom that his cycle of self-destruction might actually be harming the people around him. And then he has the audacity to use the process of recovery as an opportunity to rebrand himself so that he can go back to work, so that he can make it to the next implosion, and then the whole thing starts all over again. It's really galling. And it's really galling that uh, all of his contemporaries are so ready to to let him be this whirlwind, this raging torpedo of dick, and and then try to redeem himself. Because why? Like, why does he keep getting so many second chances? I, I think, honestly, it's because all of the people in Hollywood who try to work with him again after each one of these meltdowns or implosions or you know, felony assaults, um, I think it's because they all want to believe that a kid who started so strong with his career, who had everything going for him, the wind was really blowing in his direction, they want to believe that he can come back from the brink every time, and every time he does seem to, for a little while, and I guess that's the nature of recovery, it's a continuous battle anyway. Uh, let's talk about something a little more fun, though. Uh, speaking of the Venice Film Festival, did you all see the video of Brendan Fraser getting a six-minute standing ovation after the screening of The Whale? Uh, it's, a, it's a terrific video. The man's in tears. You can tell he's... this uh, His redemption arc, which isn't redemption so much as it's just a renaissance, like, you know, there's this... There's this uh, collected effort to make Brendan Fraser a thing again now, and I think it's great because there's a guy who 
who was a victim and it messed him up and he's been very open about the fact that it did in fact mess him up and now that he's entered the latter portion of his life and his career it's uplifting i think to see him succeed as an actor I'm not going to get into the whole debate about the fat suit with the whale. As a larger dude, I have very complicated feelings about prosthetics and makeup to make somebody look larger. I think with Brendan Fraser, it's a little bit more forgivable just because there has been a lot of hay made online about how much bigger he's gotten over the years. Uh, I'm sorry to tell a lot of internet goblins that's what happens to a man when he enters his, you know, 50s. And he's not going to the gym eight hours a day because he has to look like Captain America on screen. When you become a normal person in your 40s and 50s, your body adjusts to that. That's that's just the way time works. Stop being weird and gross about a man who looks perfectly normal and perfectly healthy. And honestly, I I I don't mind the cuddlier Brendan Fraser myself. I think that it's... It's a great new direction for him to go in. I consider Brendan Fraser the same way I do Colin Farrell, where it's like, that's a guy that they really tried to fit into the box of being the square-jawed, just chiseled-from-marble action hero, the kind of guy who is always the lead actor in a movie. He's, he's going to be Brick Hardcastle in the new McBain movie or whatever, and that's never who he's been. He's always been a weird goofball. And now he can be a weird goofball or he can do some dramatic acting. The kind of things that he couldn't get away with back when he was in his George of the Jungle physique, right? I mean, not for nothing, Colin Farrell as the Penguin, much better performance than Colin Farrell would have been as Batman back in like 2005, right? That would have been disastrous. This is much better because Colin Farrell's a weirdo. And he's wearing prosthetics in that movie, and nobody had too much of a problem with that, but they have a problem with this because the movie is about the fact that he's a large fella. Uh, I gather, I don't know much about the whale, but anyway, that's all very complicated stuff, and I have complicated feelings about it, but I will say there's nothing complicated about seeing Brendan Fraser lavished with praise and appreciation for a dramatic performance. I really, really am happy about this triumphant new chapter for him after all the stuff he went through. And it's just nice to have him back, to have him as a public figure again. Uh, I will say the standing ovations at film festivals is a weird thing. You notice that that's only at film festivals that we measure, like, with a yardstick, how the headlines keep mentioning the exact amount of minutes that every movie gets of people clapping at the end. And I find that strange. It's been going on for years. I, as a Kevin Smith fan, I know all about the Clerks 2 uh, premiere, which I think it was at Cannes? It might have been at Cannes. And it got like a big couple minutes standing ovation. And it was weird. It's weird to see the headlines be like, this movie got an exactly two minute and 38 seconds standing ovation. Okay, fine. I just find it a little bit icky measuring it like that. Um, don't ask me why. It's That's probably just a personal thing on my part. But the bottom line, a lot of people clapped and Brendan Fraser started crying and it made me tear up a little bit because I like to see that dude succeed. Support your local Brendan Fraser. Uh, <laughs> buy our t-shirt that says so on our Public store uh, media sandwich. But anyway, let's move on to comics. Uh, well, actually, actually, before we get into comics, I don't have a category for this, what I'm about to talk about. I'll just get into it right here because it's print. Comics are print. It's kind of the same thing. This is where I'm putting it. The J.K. Rowling of it all. Okay, first of all, before we get into the, the actual news, how and why hasn't the Harry Potter stuff ended up in comic books? That seems really weird to me. Like, things like Sons of Anarchy had a comic book. Bill and Ted had a comic book. Clerks has had several comic books, speaking of Kevin Smith, but Harry Potter and the Wizarding World has never really entered the medium. I wonder if that's not intentional, you know? I wonder if not a certain somebody is like, no, no, we won't be having any of that. I cannot sully the good name of my creation by putting it in funny illustrated magazines. It's a work of literature. Uh, allegedly. Allegedly, that's a British accent. <laughs> and allegedly, that's what she thinks. I have no proof 
that J.K. Rowling looks down her nose at comic books. And I'm sure that there is a Harry Potter manga or something out there. They make a manga out of everything. But it's strange to me that we haven't had like a DC series based in that universe, just from a basic business synergy standpoint, right? It would make total sense if it were the case that she's she views comic books as lesser than her priceless prose that made her a billion dollars. But anyways, J.K. Rowling wrote another non-wizard doorstop. Uh, it's called The Ink Black Heart, and I suggest that no one read it or buy it. If you're a librarian who's in charge of what books are stocked on the shelves, leave this one off the list because uh, it sounds like a dumpster fire. This book is about, get this, a famous creative who gets canceled after making her garbage opinions known online. Huh. Of course, it takes things to a much more heightened place where this, uh, YouTube cartoon creator, is it? Oof! Uh, is murdered, uh, by a crazed stalker, and there's a whole lot of, uh, the detectives have to solve the case, and there's this running theme of, oh, we should have believed this poor woman. You believe women, because, you know, nobody believed her when she said she had a crazed stalker who was gonna kill her, and then it did happen. Uh, yeah. So this is a, this is a billion dollar author who used to be held up as one of the most creative writers of the last few decades. Someone who was compared to like Stephen King and George Lucas in terms of world building and, you know, just like of, of her time. And she's basically written a thousand page self insert fanfic here filled with straw men who are sending her surrogate character mean tweets filled with death and rape threats. And, and the tweets, the tweets are printed out like tweets in the book, which is probably why it's a thousand pages long. Good grief. How gross. And, uh, the tweets don't even pass muster as seeming real. I saw a couple of them on a, a news story that I read for this. And it really smacks of like your dad trying to impersonate a young person on Twitter by misspelling words and shortening Y-O-U to the letter U, things like that. Uh, pretty pathetic, pretty pathetic, pretty out of touch. Now, do I think Rowling has probably received death or rape threats because of her disgusting opinions or possibly for her taking a bizarrely obstinate stance against any criticisms of said disgusting transphobic opinions? Uh, yeah, yeah, I guarantee she has been objectively the victim of harassment online. Sure, I mean, sorry to say it, but who hasn't? I was once threatened in a comment on an old No Right Answer video. Fella told me that he would beat my fat ass to death for saying, I don't know, something mean about Green Lantern or some such shit. I don't remember. Uh, people threaten you with grisly death or rape if you're a woman for literally no reason. The human race was a mistake in that regard, but uh, there are so many things to unpack about this wildly weird choice to write this novel. Uh, the persecution complex of a wealthy white woman, for starters. The very middle school-esque conceit of writing a thousand pages of thinly veiled fiction paralleling your present public situation, for another. Uh, or, hey, how about the notion that uh, her safety being threatened, or indeed just her hefty livelihood based on the profitability of her work being threatened, uh, is somehow an excuse for putting said gross hatred out into the world and into the impressionable minds of her dumbass fan base. It's all just really weird. It's, uh, it's ego run amok, and the publishers are probably just licking their chops in a very Harvey Weinstein way. Not like in a rapist way. I mean, I mean, in the way Weinstein used to take like the bare hint of controversy surrounding a film that he was producing and spin it into free publicity for the product that he's trying to sell. I think that's probably what the the publishers of this book are probably doing. Anyway, I don't say things like this often on the podcast, but fuck J.K. Rowling and fuck her new book and fuck her smug sense of entitlement like, we're, we're not allowed to call her out for being stupid and hateful because, because why? Because she wrote some popular kids books 20 years ago? I mean, for one thing, she hasn't done anything of substance since that. And I dare say she never will again because she's too busy grasping at relevance 
in this weird arena to come up with anything as mildly clever as the Harry Potter franchise again. Gross. Uh, let's get back to talking about something classy, shall we? And that's comic books. Uh, postscript to last week's comic book news, remember that the DC Hispanic Heritage Month situation? They pulled a real boner, uh, having all of their Hispanic characters holding chimichangas and whatnot on all of those uh, supposed tribute covers. Covers? <laughs> on all of those uh, supposed tribute covers. But the chief issue of the Jorge Molina cover for Green Lantern, the one that had uh, Kyle Rayner posing in an homage to La Patria, the famous uh, mural, DC, I guess, figured out the quote-unquote copyright issues that they were saying uh, forced them to change it, and they decided to run the original cover that Molina drew and actually kept his signature on instead of their oddly lazy amended version that changed the flag and changed the lantern into an overflowing bag of tamales and all that. So, um, a happy ending. DC did the right thing here with that one cover, at least. They listened to the public shellacking that they were taking and, and said, you know what? It is true. Let's run the art as it was intended. So, congratulations, DC, for doing something. You did something right. Uh, don't let it go to your head. Uh, anyway, another cool thing in comics, the latest Marvel miniseries about the Spider-Verse is in full force right now. If you if you only know the movie Into the Spider-Verse and you don't read any of the comic books or you don't read my comic book picks of the week, uh, especially the one I did a few weeks back, you might not know that the concept of teaming up every version of uh, Spider-Man or a Spider-something else in the entire multiverse uh, it's actually been an event uh, several times in the comics. First with the Spider-Verse arc in 2014. That's the one that the movie's kind of based off of. And then Spider-Geddon in 2018. And now they have the third and final of these arcs, The End of the Spider-Verse, which started last month. And uh, there's some terrific new characters in this, ver uh, this third arc. There's a Scottish Highlander version of Spidey. There's a Spider-Man dinosaur. I'm not making that up. But the latest and final issue of the arc, uh, which comes out this week, features the first gay spider hero, Web Weaver, who is a fashion designer who works at the Van Dyne Company. Uh, for the non-Marvel literate, that's Wasp's company, Janet Van Dyne. She's the big fashion-oriented character, if you remember. Uh, and also, hey, hey, what if Craven the Hunter got spider powers? That's the other big one in this new issue, is Hunter Spider. So that sounds like fun. Uh, this series has been uh, really just loads of fun, really leaning into being a more anthology-style place for writers and artists to design fun new spins on the Spider-Man mythos and use that to branch out into different art styles and stuff. Really good stuff. Check it out. Uh, where comic books are sold either digitally or in print, uh, your local comic book shop would certainly appreciate your patronage. But hey, hey, speaking of queer content in comic books, or in this case, graphic novels, does anybody remember the case against the book titled Gender Queer? Uh, this was a graphic novel by Maya Kobabe, and it's a semi-autobiographical story about them coming to terms with their gender identity. So naturally, it's a book that a big vocal subset of people wanted instantly banned for reasons. Uh, a particularly obsessed Republican state delegate in the state of Virginia, and overall just a big, big cootie of a person by the name of Tim Anderson, filed a lawsuit against this book, as well as another book, 2016's A Court of Mist and Fury, you see, folks, in Virginia, apparently there was a weird and archaic bit of law on the books that allowed for petitioners to request a judicial review of books to determine if they were obscene in content. And if they were determined to be so, they would be deemed illegal to sell or distribute in any way in the state. Not just in publicly funded libraries, but in privately uh, owned uh, bookstores, and large book chains like Barnes & Noble. Well, anyway, 
That case has a verdict as of this last week, and Judge Pamela Baskerville determined that the law is stupid. Okay, no, that's not true. Uh, A judge cannot legally deem something stupid, but they can legally deem it to be unconstitutional, which she did. She did do that. She done did that. Uh, Obviously, it's unconstitutional. I'm not a lawyer, but I do know a thing or two about the First Amendment coming from a journalism-adjacent background in education, and it seemed legally shaky to me from the outset that people could get mad and sue for a book to be determined to be illegal based on its content to be sold privately. Now, if you want more details on this, uh, go to Twitter. Go to Twitter, find an account for the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund. Conveniently, that is at CBLDF. And there's an entire thread about the case from someone who is much more of an expert on the subject than I am. But in general, good. I think, good. Call me a crazed Marxist weirdo, but I think banning books is largely a bad idea. And the people who want to do it usually suck and should lose. And also, hooray for a graphic novel that might help young people reconcile with their personal identity. Uh, read Gender Queer. It's available everywhere, including Virginia. Okay, we're going to wrap it up with TV news. Uh, so quick off the dome news first. Uh, Saturday Night Live has lost three more cast members. Uh, that's actually a bigger deal than it sounds like. Uh, Melissa Villasenor, Alex Moffat, and Aristotle Athari will not return for the show's uh, 48th season. Wow, 48th season? Uh, This is coming right after some of the biggest names on the show took their leave back in May, including Kate McKinnon and Pete Davidson. Uh, This is starting to look a lot like what happened about 10 years ago, if you don't remember. Andy Samberg and Kristen Wiig both left around the same time, and then very quickly after that, Jason Sudeikis uh, took off. And then eventually Fred Armisen and Bill Hader took off a few months after that. It was all in a matter of about a year. So yeah, Saturday Night Live suddenly looked like a very different show after that. They had to really retool the way they functioned week to week. And you know, SNL, you might not think, it's still very relevant in television despite having, you know, you would think it would have faded away in the wake of YouTube and TikTok and a lot of streaming television, but... The last two years, the show has actually had a real jump in viewership. Uh, They started simultaneously broadcasting live across the country, which put it in a primetime slot for those of us over here on the West Coast, and it actually did very well. It was like the most watched show in its time slot in the 18 to 49 demographic, which is, that's the all-important demographic. Those are the people that you want to watch your TV shows. And I find that surprising. I find it very surprising that it's still that popular. I wonder what it is about this, this faded carpet of a television program that still snags so many people on a Saturday night, but I'll never know. Now, speaking of uh, television, we all know, because the advertising is inescapable, Amazon's Lord of the Rings, the the Rings, the Rings of Power, the Rings of Power, uh, premiered this last weekend. And in case you didn't know, it is by far the most expensive television program to date. Uh, The rights for the Tolkien world alone cost old Bezos $250 million. And then, and then, they had to start paying for the show itself. And that one season of TV cost allegedly $465 million. That's not including the hefty advertising either. So you're talking about a season of TV somewhere in the ballpark of three quarters of a billion dollars. Holy hell, that's so much money. That's a lot of money even by Hollywood blockbuster standards, honestly. And and yeah, I get it. It's Lord of the Rings. That shit's expensive. But here's something that caught my eye on The Hollywood Reporter in relation to that. The Russo brothers, they of the Avengers movies and my favorite punching bag of this last summer, Netflix's The Gray Man. The Russo brothers have apparently been developing another show for Amazon, Would you be shocked to know that it's a slick spy thriller like The Gray Man? No? 
would you be shocked uh, by the fact that it would be a team up of a bunch of international spies who have to join forces to tackle a big world ending threat? Huh, that's starting to sound familiar, isn't it? Almost Avengers-esque. What about the notion that each spy would then get a spin-off show about their missions on their individual local turf in between the big team-up show? Huh. Huh. I seem to remember something about the Grey Man getting a bunch of spin-offs too. Huh. Huh. How about the actual news uh, that brought this whole thing up? that the whole plan to do this is crumbling into ruins and costing Amazon another obscene amount of money. None of that's surprising. None of it is surprising. But I guess this does technically count as a form of entertainment, so you got me there, Bezo. You've paid for it, and I'm lapping it up like a dog. Uh, this show... This show is called Citadel, by the by... And I don't know, it it might sound interesting when it comes out. It might look good if you show me a good enough trailer for it. Uh, the Russo brothers are certainly not a big draw for me, but uh, also the leads of the show are Richard Madden, a.k.a. Rob Stark from Game of Thrones, and also the uh, dude from Eternals. You know, the one who's kind of wooden, like he's not really sure what's going on in the script or what the tennis ball in front of him is supposed to represent. Uh, anyway, it's him and Priyanka Chopra Jonas, uh, star of ABC's Quantico, a show that definitely existed between 2015 and 2018. Uh, anyway, Citadel, this show has had a real rough go of it. The Russos were all wrapped up in doing The Gray Man, so they were splitting time between that and producing Citadel. And because of it, they started butting heads with the screenwriters who helped develop the project with them, whose names are Josh Applebaum and Andre Nemec. Nemec? Nemec? Don't know. Uh, but those guys were steering the ship in the Russo's absence, and it started turning into a weird, you know, two, uh, rival sides of the argument situation. Uh, they were shooting three units at once on location in most instances. That's pretty daunting uh amazon didn't like the footage that they were kicking back to them so they start amazon started siding with you know the directors of the second highest grossing movie of all time rather than the screenwriters uh there were also competing cuts of the pilot one on each side of that uh argument and eventually uh applebaum gets let go back in december and with him goes uh, director Brian Kirk, who directed five out of the seven episodes of Citadel. He also walks. That's not looking good. That's a really bad couple of signs right there. Now, keep in mind, this is also while COVID restrictions have made all television budgets absolutely skyrocket. But Citadel jumped over the $250 million mark, making it you guessed it, the second most expensive television show of all time behind Lord of the Rings, The, the Rings of Power. Uh, <laughs> woof. Amazon, what are you doing? What are you doing with your television shows? They're not supposed to cost that much. Uh, seven episodes. Seven episodes of television for a quarter of a billion dollars. And this is not based on an expensive, previously proven IP like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones. Also, unlike those shows, there are no dragons in this one either. Presumably. I, I don't know, maybe. <laughs> but this show uh, just finished a bunch of hefty reshoots over the summer, and now it's in post-production. And there are a number of factors here at play. Okay, first off, TV has taken a huge jump in scale recently because of streaming companies like Amazon and Netflix behind them. Uh, you know, the whole, it's not a TV show, it's a 10-hour movie that you should binge all at once. Bunch of horse hockey. Uh, I think, make a TV show, make it episodic. Each episode should have its own epi episode structure. Stop screwing around with this thing of, we're making a 10-hour movie. No, you're not. No, you're not. If it was a 10-hour movie, it wouldn't be a movie. But I think another big factor, I think it's pretty striking, that the Russo brothers have, since Avengers Endgame had a real trouble finding a grip on their budgets. They recently had a sci-fi project uh, that went into turnaround over at Universal 
because $200 million just wasn't enough money for their grand sci-fi vision. So Netflix is going to pick up the tab on that one after the 250, almost $250 million that they spent on the Gray Man. These are the same guys who made several compelling action thrill rides within episodes of Community, using nothing but paintball guns and Joel McHale. And, and from a creative standpoint, it's kind of funny to me that these fellas can't get past the idea of international spy thrillers or big Avengers-style team-ups or the idea that everything has to become another shared universe with spin-off franchises falling off the tree like ripe fruit with their vanity card attached to each one. It's almost like they've completely lost perspective after being rocketed to the top of the entertainment industry in just a few short years. AKA my big gripe that I harp on all the time on this podcast and other places. You cannot pluck talented directors from indie or television landscapes hand them the reins of a project that costs the same as the gross domestic product of a small nation, and not expect it to warp their perspective a little bit. Uh, as a result, we have an entire generation of filmmakers who never had to work their way up to that scale. And they just instantly stagnate as soon as they're handed the, the keys to the castle. Let's do a little mind exercise here. Imagine, if you will, a Steven Spielberg who went directly from Duel which costs like half a million dollars, maybe, or even the Sugarland Express, which costs three million. Granted, that's three million back in the early 70s, which is, you know, that's a lot more back then than it is now. But still, imagine him going from that directly to Hook or Jurassic Park, which still, those didn't even cost that much. Those were both under $70 million, I think. Again, back in the early 90s, different amounts, inflation and whatnot, but still, think about if his career didn't have everything in between those two eras. Not only are you skipping over the entire period where he learns how to run shows with steadily increasing budgets, uh, dodging studio notes, uh, dealing with bigger stars, more complicated visuals and technical issues and special effects, Forget all that. We're also skipping over the entire period of his career where he had all of his creative growth as a storyteller, as a visual storyteller especially. You don't get the amazing T-Rex attack sequence from Jurassic Park without Jaws. You don't get AI without E.T. <laughs> you don't get Saving Private Ryan without 1941. <laughs> These are all jokes. They all sound like jokes, but I am kind of serious. That's what the Russo brothers are. That's what Patty Jenkins is now. That's what Josh Trank was for a hot minute there. I like to bring back Josh Trank as the worst case scenario example of this. But honestly, even the best case scenarios, like, uh, honestly, Taika Waititi. I like the guy, but Thor Love and Thunder, it has the visuals of a Nickelodeon show in spots. It's very clear that they shot it in a Best Buy parking lot, which sucks. It really sucks. And also, as a result, we don't have any more mid-budget movies to look forward to anymore. Not even on Amazon or on Netflix can we find a reasonable 40 to $70 million movie. And all the genres that that range afforded us, like a legal thriller or a romantic comedy that doesn't involve action sequences, or your basic Ashley Judd serial killer movie, those no longer exist. And meanwhile, a straightforward action spy movie... Or in the case of Citadel, a TV show, cost five or six times what it really needs to. Uh, because the Russo brothers just don't know how to make a movie that costs less than $200 million anymore. I mean, The Gray Man was my favorite punching bag this summer specifically, because it's a movie that easily could have been made for $75 million without breaking a sweat, and it would have been a better movie, and having not seen a frame of Citadel, I have every confidence that it could have been made on the same budget as, like, a USA Network uh, Blue Sky show, like Burn Notice or Covert Affairs or whatnot, if only the entertainment industry wasn't engaged in this morbid arms race. Now, meanwhile, what were the best television shows of the summer that everybody can kind of agree on? Better Call Saul. The Bear. What We Do in the Shadows. Right? Funny how that works. None of those cost $250 million, did they? Anyway, that's all the spicy, steamy stuff that I had for you this week. A lot of, lot of, lot of rancor, but 
It's all in good fun. Thanks for tuning in, as always. And if you do have any news items which you'd like me to hear me get snooty, snotty, uh, you can email the show at mediasandwichshow at gmail.com, or you can send us a tweet at media underscore sandwich on Twitter. You can also follow us there for all the podcasts, videos, and blog posts that go up at www.media-sandwich.com. And you can also find it all at facebook.com slash media sandwich show if that's your place for stuff. And hey, since I'm in your ears right now, be a pal and subscribe to the show in your podcast app of choice. And maybe write me a nice review to let me know how you liked my service today. My supervisor is looking over my shoulder right now. And uh, until next week, I'm Kyle Martinak and uh, I'm going to go have a sandwich. <laughs>